0: Blood Talk Radio. Welcome to another episode of Empatient Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. There are two ways you can subscribe to Empatient News. To hear about our previous episodes and learn more about our upcoming shows, please go to www.mpatient.org on the homepage and sign up for our new Mpatient Minute, which is our weekly newsletter that contains all show information in one email. You can also subscribe to all posts as they come out. With the recent acquisition of Onyx by Amgen, I was curious to know how myeloma drug goes from an idea to a real therapy being used successfully in the clinic. We're very fortunate to hear from a top researcher, Dr. Craig Cruz of the Cruz Laboratory at Yale University, who achieved this very thing with his discovery and development of the drug carfilzomib for multiple myeloma. So thank you, Dr. Cruz, for joining me today. My pleasure. Before we start, I'd like to give a short introduction of you for our listeners, if that's okay. Please. Dr. Cruz is a Louis B. Coleman Professor of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology in the Departments of Chemistry and Pharmacology at Yale University. He performed his undergraduate work at the University of Virginia in Chemistry and earned his PhD in Biochemistry at Harvard University. He is the recipient of the Senior Scholar Award at the Ellison Medical Foundation, continues as a visiting professor at a university in Germany, received the Bessel Research Award from the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation in Germany, and as a fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry. Earlier in his career, he was also awarded the Donahue Foundation New Investigator Award and the Burroughs Wellcome Foundation New Investigator Award. He also serves on the editorial board of ChemBioChem and Chemistry and Biology. Dr. Cruz has created multiple patents focusing on enzyme and proteasome inhibition. His drug carfilzomib, now called kyprolis, was approved by the FDA for relapsed multiple myeloma in July of 2012. Dr. Cruz, we all thank you for your deep research and for developing an improved therapy for multiple myeloma. My pleasure. So I guess the first question would be, how did you come to the idea for a new proteasome inhibitor for multiple myeloma?
1: Well, it was quite by accident. Um, I was studying a... Um, compound from nature it was uh, a small molecule that was found in a microbial broth that um, had been discovered actually by a pharmaceutical company, Bristol-Myers, Bristol-Myers Squibb, um, in, in Tokyo. And they were interested in looking for novel anti-tumor agents. Um, and they had found one that was quite promising, but they ultimately made a business decision not to explore it any further because they didn't know how it worked. And they anticipated that the FDA would want to know that information before they would approve uh, any drug based on, on that uh, natural product. And so they published it once they decided they weren't going to develop it any further. So I came, um, I became aware of this molecule called epoxymycin. As a uh, recently appointed assistant faculty member at Yale in the late 1990s uh, when I was reading a journal article about this, and I became intrigued. Um, it was a very potent um, compound without any um, idea of how it was working, um, and so I wanted to see if we might be able to help answer that question, um, what was the mechanism by which this this compound uh, from this bacterium could really kill tumor cells. And so um, I applied for a grant uh, from the National Institutes of Health, NIH, and um, I was fortunate enough to get uh, funding for this very basic question of of how this compound uh, affects uh, tumor cells. And so I set out to, to do this, but the, the first stumbling block was we didn't have access to... Any of the compound because uh, Bristol Myers Squibb had subsequently closed their research center in, in Tokyo, and I couldn't get my hands on any of the material. So um, my lab, which is half chemists and half biologists, we set out to um, actually make our own version of of epoxamycin. And so when we did that, which happened to be the the very first reported um, synthesis. Uh, of, of this compound. But this allowed us not only to study its effect and confirm its effect on tumor cells, but it also allowed us to start tweaking uh, the structure of, of the natural product. And the first tweak we did was to basically put a, a handle, if you will, a molecular handle on the compound, and we went fishing. And by that I mean we, we would add it to cells, it would get inside cells, and we wanted, of course, to know how it worked, and that meant we had to find what protein was being bound by this, um, what protein was binding to this this compound. And so, when we fished out of uh, a the cell the, the protein bound to this compound, we found that it was the proteasome. And so, mm-hmm. for for your listeners, the, the proteasome is is a large cylinder, a very um, complex uh, machinery inside the cell, whose job it is to to degrade proteins. And so um, this was the first clue that our molecule could be working through um, blocking the function of the proteasome. It could be inhibiting the function of the proteasome um, because it was binding. And so at that point, we um, published our results. And uh, we're quite excited about this because uh, we knew from uh, the work by millennium of a a sm- small molecule that was uh, working its way through the FDA approval uh, process for multiple myeloma, um, and we know that compound today as Velcade or Bortezomib. Mm-hmm. And so what we subsequently did, um, we asked ourselves... Um, you know, even though this was a, a potent molecule, now that we know what target is uh, of this molecule inside the cell, um, we asked ourselves if we could improve upon Mother Nature. And so uh, I threw it back to the chemists in the lab uh, and challenged them to tweak the compound structure a little bit here, a little bit there, and, and come up with uh, something that was uh, an improved version. And when they did that, after a fair bit of work, as you can imagine, um, we came up with a molecule that we call YU-101, for, for Yale University 101. And it was that molecule that we were able to demonstrate was many times better than the natural product from nature, epoxamycin. And was um, many times better than Velcade, uh, the the compound that was soon to be approved for multiple myeloma. And so it was at that point that we confirmed um, that it was, yes, still uh, a potent antitumor agent, and and we were able to do that here at Yale. But that is as far as my lab felt comfortable in in taking this project, because we really were able to take it from a very basic research question, um, through to answering that question and, and then flipping it over to a more translational medicine uh, uh, effort to, to improve upon this, to make a, a lead compound, if you will, for further uh, development as a potential therapeutic. But mm-hmm. um, it was at that point that Yale University and myself and several other researchers uh, started a company and that company being uh, called Proteolix. And and so Proteolix took YU-101, added uh, one last tweak to it to allow it to be more easily dissolvable in in, um, water, and um, took that into the clinic. And and that molecule is today carfilzomib, or uh, known as kyprolis, as you mentioned.
0: You started this at what point? When were you getting the NIH grant, and how long did this process take?
1: So I got the NIH grant at the very beginning, um, and so the the grant application um, is relatively straightforward uh, in terms of the application. You, you, we propose a, we pose a question, we, we explain how we're going to address that question, and uh, then a, a team of uh, our peers, scientists, serve on a review panel uh, at the NIH to then pass judgment, if you will, uh, on mm-hmm. whether it should be funded. Uh, I should I should pause right here and, and just uh, emphasize what I, I think is is um, well known, but maybe it's not, and that is the funding for biomedical research in, in the U.S. is uh, has decreased. Um, in the last uh, 10 to 15 years and to the point where for every um, for every 100 applications that are put into the NIH, uh, 90 of them are being rejected. And it, it's clear that there are some that should be rejected, but as you can imagine, year after year after year, the bad ones, the, the mediocre scientists, they leave the field and we're really... <laughs> cutting into bone now in terms of rejecting really good science. Um, And that's uh, not even addressing the question of of making sure there's an environment, funding environment, that Mm -hmm. is supportive of young investigators like myself (laughs) years ago when I was starting out and it was given a chance. Um, And so I I encourage all of your listeners to um, be active uh, and, active supporters of um, not only the, the applied side, uh, but also the basic research side of of um, the U.S. Um, biomedical community, because uh, you never know where the next breakthrough drug is going to be coming from.
0: Right. And how, as patients, can we best do that?
1: Well, it's engaging your, your congressman or congresswoman, um, making sure that they um, know that this is a priority to you uh, making sure that they are aware that um it's not always possible to predict um what the, the the best drug is going to be and and the importance for studying very very basic things um why on earth would if you think about it well, you know studying something that comes from some bacterium uh some compound um and and how it works is so far removed from um ultimately the the the, the drug that was approved um but is that type of very broad um, scientific inquiry that has uh set us apart as a country uh for for decades from all the other countries and um has fueled um the biotech industry um as well as uh the successes that we have seen in um, pharmaceutical development, and some might argue that the decreased number of uh, new drugs in the pipeline today um, mm-hmm. may be a, a, a reflection of the decreased investment that began, unfortunately, in the um, about a, 15 years ago.
0: Okay, and it, well, it is a challenge, and we've heard that from other myeloma researchers as well, and. Um, I think we'd like to know what we as patients can can do. So those suggestions are great. So, you've kind of taken us through the actual compound, and then to when you passed it off at Proteolix. Can you give us an overview of what happened then, or what the other sure. steps were to turn it into a drug?
1: Sure. So, um, as many of your um, listeners may may know, that the drug uh, approval process go, has, has three phases. Um, right. The first is um, phase one trials are, are safety trials and um, are designed to determine um, what, what concentrations, uh, how much of the drug um, can be safely administered uh, to patients. And um, it's a very important um, um, clinical trial um because it's um we obviously want to be dosing at the safest concentrations possible um but it's oftentimes not always possible to be able to see a, an effect in phase 1 clinical trials um mm-hmm. so um there it requires a, a bit of altruism on on patient's part to to volunteer for phase 1 once the, the, the um, amount of drug that can be safely administered to a patient is determined, um, then the next step being phase two uh, clinical trials begin. And in, in phase two clinical trials, the FDA is asking the company to prove that their drug candidate is better than anything that else that's out there. And the point of view from the agency is, is why should we allow Another me-too drug; it has to be better. And so, um, these patients um, that are enrolled in phase two clinical trials will have already exhausted uh, a series of other options, clinically speaking, or therapeutically speaking. And therefore, they're very challenging patients. Um, um, And 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 that's that's the point: is to set a a high hurdle for any drug candidate. Coming out of phase two. But if successful, if there is some um, hint that the drug is working in these patients that have been um, um, seen a lot of other uh, therapeutics on, and, and have failed them, then that's when um, phase three and the final registrational trials, as they're called, begin. And they're called registrational because if successful, then one can uh, register for a, an FDA approval uh, on, uh, based on those uh, clinical results. And so in the phase three, which are a much, much larger um, uh, trial series um, that, uh, in terms of larger numbers of, of patients enrolled, this is where patients who Uh, have not had any prior uh, or have limited prior exposure to other drugs. The idea is the FDA wants to see how this drug candidate behaves as if um, a patient had walked off the street into his or her doctor's office and been presented for the first time with a therapeutic option. So oftentimes these trials are run in a comparison with the standard of care, the the best in class of another, uh, whatever is currently the best out there. And so that way, uh, but the, the point being that these patients um, would not be as, as, um, um,
0: maybe not in an advanced, uh, yeah, exactly. as, of a, as of advanced use stage, maybe. Well,
1: well it's not, they, they, not so much advanced, it's not that
0: they, ha- they haven't seen other
1: compounds. or other prior therapies prior therapies exactly Mm -hmm. so the as I'm sure you know prior therapies can change the course of the disease the disease changes once it's been exposed to something else it changes in response to to these therapies and so we wanted to you know the FDA wants to to have a head to head comparison with what's what's currently best in class and see how um, the candidate behaves and so that's how things um so that's a phase three. In the case of Proteolics and, and carfilzomib, uh Kyprolis, um because our phase two data were so convincing mm-hmm. and so compelling, we actually got um the or I should say the, the, the company that acquired uh Proteolics, that company being Onyx Pharmaceuticals, uh made the business decision to actually apply for FDA approval based on the Phase two data and and um and they were successful and mm-hmm. so the FDA said listen given the given the limited number of options out there today, um, even though we haven't yet done all of the clinical trials, um, we will approve um, Kyprolis for those patients that are uh, relapsed um, refractory patients that these are the patients who have failed other therapies um, as I said those are the patients that are inc- recruited for phase two there are ongoing uh, phase three clinical trials and so if successful in those um, then uh, the company can apply for approval for what's known as frontline treatment meaning that as I said naive patients that have just newly been diagnosed would be offered kyprolis as their first option. But those data are, aren't are yet uh, available because the clinical trial is, is ongoing.
0: And right now you need to get a prior therapy, correct?
1: You have to have a prior, yeah. you have to failed prior therapy, yes, for, for kyprolis.
0: So in total, how many trials really need to be run on a new drug like carfilzomib where before it's FDA approved?
1: Well, in theory, um, three um three of phase 1 phase 2 and phase 3 but but in reality there are um after a phase 1 which simply as i said sets the safety uh, parameters there are often multiple phase 2 and multiple phase 3 the idea being that you might want to try um a, your candidate in combination with something else and so each change in, in the design of of the trial necessitates a new trial. And mm-hmm. so uh, if, if you want to con, um, uh, couple Kyprolis with uh, um, an image class from Celgene, one of their molecules, to see if, if in combination it works be better than um, the Celgene's compound by itself, then you need to do those types of studies. And so that's why it can be a bit confusing when when a patient goes on clinicaltrials.gov, uh, the website that lists all of the clinical trials ongoing today, searches for uh, multiple myeloma or searches for uh, kyprolis. Uh, they would see a number of trials that um, um, are Either wrapping up or, or, or starting, and there are new indications too. Um, we've seen success, obviously, in, with multiple myeloma, but this particular um, drug, this proteasome inhibitor, carprolis, might have some um, efficacy. might Might be effective against, say, solid tumors, mm-hmm. and so that re- necessitates another um, another series of clinical trials.
0: Okay, and in terms of funding, so the NIH grant to the initial funding, and then when um, it was developed by Protelex, how did they receive their funding? And then it kind of went to the went to Onyx, who I'm assuming funds funds that research themselves, or are there other funding steps along the way?
1: So the the um, founding of of a biotech um, traditionally involves Um, uh, recruiting of uh, money, capital, from uh, venture capitalists. And so these are uh, investors who are willing to take the risk um, that uh, they might strike it big or they might lose everything. And (laughs) so the the model has traditionally been, given the high failure rate um, in uh, these companies, is that they're hoping that one out of every eight or one out of every ten comp- companies that they start will hit it big, and but the the return, the, the amount of money they make on that one that is successful is more than eight or ten times uh, the initial investment. So that that's how they ultimately will make money, even though nine out of ten companies will fail. And so um, just to uh, give you a... Some some numbers here. Um, the, the company Proiolics was started with an industrial investment of $18 million. Okay. And that allowed uh, the tweaking of the structure of YU101 into the final candidate, Kyprolis, as I mentioned, and also started funding safety trials, phase one trials. But subsequent um, trials required additional investments. And so those initial investors went out and talked to their friends and, and sometimes went back to their own firms and asking for additional money. The the, the bottom line, if you will, is that um, by the time Onyx, seven years later, bought Proteolix, the investment um, of all of the investors in Proteolix was uh, over $140 million. Wow. Onyx, however, purchased that for um, m- for what will will be upwards of 850 million dollars uh, oh. if the drug makes all of its clinical milestones. And so the investors made made money, and they're now able to take that that, that uh, those profits and go off and and do this again with another 10 companies, hoping that one of them will be successful.
0: And similar. We would and love for them so, to be
1: some <laughs> Yes. Mm-hmm. And and just to wrap up the, the, the story here on, on terms of the investment side, uh last mm-hmm. week uh Onyx um having made that eight hundred and fifty million dollar investment in Proteolics was now sold itself for ten point four billion dollars. Wow. Uh, by and it was bought purchased by the largest um biotech in the world called Amgen. And so Amgen Sees the successful um, multiple myeloma drug, and it, it, which is projected to be upwards of two billion dollars a year in sales, and in a couple of years, and um, they wanted to have that in their portfolio.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's a huge success story, beginning with you. So we we thank you, and and one for patients as well. Now I've heard researchers talk about what they call the valley of death for a drug. Can you can you tell us what that might be and how you overcame that with Carfilz
1: Right. So so the Valley of Death refers to um how far an, an academic can take uh an academic researcher can take a project within a university setting. Um which is which is limited. We don't have the resources of a large pharmaceutical company. We don't have the animal testing. Oftentimes, um, we don't have the large team of medicinal chemists and, and whatnot and pharmacologists. And so, there are a lot of discoveries that have great potential, but mm-hmm. no one's picking them up as projects. And previously, the pharmaceutical companies um, internally had the bandwidth to be able to look at what is being done in academia, in the universities, and to say, that looks interesting, why don't we work on that for a little bit and see if we can make something of it. And so, it was much more exploratory research. They were willing to take uh, a project that was high risk um, and and to de-risk it, if you will, kind of figure out uh, and answer some of the obvious questions. Um, And, you know, for the most part, they didn't pan out, but some did. And that served as the very beginning of the pipeline, of the drug pipeline uh, for for these drug companies. What unfortunately has happened is with the um, mergers and acquisitions and all of the restructuring within the large pharmaceutical industry, um, the internal research and development um, has taken a hit and a lot of the uh, capacity to be able to evaluate um, very early discovery projects reported by academics like myself no longer is in place. And so they have turned their attention, large pharmaceutical companies, instead of um, building it from within, they'll rather go out and purchase companies like Proteolics. And so... What that means is that works for a while, while there still are companies like Proteolix, but if there's no one out starting the companies and there's no internal transfer from the, the university labs into large pharma school labs at the very earliest stages, then things, the, the pipeline dries up. And so this valley of death. how do you take a project that's very promising but has a lot of obvious questions uh, of whether it can be useful as a drug. How do you take that project from, say, my laboratory, and and um, get it get a large pharmaceutical company interested in it, where they are saying, well, that might be interesting, but we have all these concerns that need to be first addressed, and we're looking at ourselves on this side of the valley and say, well, we don't know, we don't have the
0: capacity <laughs> right.
1: to do this, and so mm-hmm. this is where. Um, this is where biotech is stepping in, where the venture capitalists are saying, we're willing to assume the risk. You know, there are questions, yes, but we see that if we answer those questions and uh, successfully, then we might be able to turn around and sell this project or sell this company to a, a, a pharmaceutical company. And so, in a part, you might think, one way of saying is that large pharmaceutical companies are, are um, outsourcing, if you will, a lot of the innovation that they were originally had internally, but now they they are outsourcing that. The challenge, of course, is how do we educate from my side, my fellow academics, the university professors, uh, how do I educate them saying, listen, we need to take it to the next level. It's not sufficient. It's not enough just to... Discover something and publish it, and and hope that someone's going to pick it up. You have to champion this. You have to be an advocate for this. You have to, um, you know, fight for 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 what you think has great potential. Um, and so, what I'm trying to do here at Yale and others uh, uh, and other universities are trying to make this transfer of technology from an academic lab to, say, a startup biotech. Uh-huh. Uh, easier, and and that revo- requires you know educating my fellow professors and saying, you know, it's not that hard to to attract people that are willing to invest in your story. And so, um, I, I am very very concerned about the valley of death, but I feel that there, I'm optimistic that we might be able to overcome this. The other yeah. thing that I I do feel. Um, that i 'm optimistic about is, is foundation based um venture philanthropy um, mm-hmm. so I, I i know for example polycystic kidney disease foundation p k d foundation the cystic fibrosis um and i think and definitely the leukemia lymphoma society um they are you know th- these large foundations as you may be aware are, are taking a more aggressive stance to Helping biotechs, not just the academic research, but but um, allowing uh, some of their their funds to go f- to for-profit uh, uh, entities for the purposes of advancing uh, drugs of their interest. My my point is that you know this might be another entry, another uh, another way to address the valley of death. Is my point.
0: Yes, the LLS is very involved in helping support actual drug development, like Gleevec is one of the examples there that was funded both by the NIH and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. The myeloma space also has its foundations, the IMF, the MMRF, and the Moore Foundation, who fund myeloma research and, in some cases, drug development. And now I have another question on a different topic. Now that you've run, run through the process successfully, what are the key lessons you've learned and would you do anything differently the next go around?
1: Yes. So um, key, key lessons. Um, well, the, the the most important one is that it is possible. Oftentimes, people um, don't start something because no one has gone before, uh, and, and they they think things aren't possible. And so, I, I hope that one takeaway, uh, at least for the for, for my colleagues, is that if there is a Something that is potentially uh, a potential therapeutic that came from your your laboratory. I would encourage people to to um, find the necessary capital and 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 team to start a biotech uh, if they can't directly engage a um, a large pharmaceutical company. Um, so yes, I I think that that's the the most important thing. I, I've been very fortunate in that this particular story. Um, was was a a fantastic one in sense of the the team at Proteolics um were able to to develop this drug in such record time and uh now obviously it's it's approved and and it is helping patients um, the uh fortunate thing for, for me personally is that um with this prior success it's uh allowing me to uh, more easily uh attract the investment in uh, my next company, which I just recently have started uh, this summer, um, we're still looking for what indications, but certainly multiple myeloma is is what I know well. This uh, is it going to be a, an oncology, uh, uh, oncology focused uh, company.
0: Okay, well, this is a good uh, question. Next question then for you. <laughs> um, my husband, in when he talks, sometimes he quotes Bob Metcalf of Three Com. And he was the inventor of the Ethernet. And he said, most successful entrepreneurs I've met have no idea about the reasons for their success. My success was mystery to me then and only a little less so now. (laughs) Which I think is a a funny quote, but I think sometimes it's true in entrepreneurship anyway. So in science, is it similar? Or how can we replicate your success and the success of others when it comes to myeloma discoveries?
1: Well... it, it, it's a that's a good point um uh, i i teach uh, graduate students uh d- these are the, the people who are actually doing the work in a laboratory um training them to be future researchers future professors and one of the things that i try to teach and i'm still grappling with this after 18 years um is is how do you teach uh creativity you know how do you teach cre- uh, teach uh innovation and uh it's basically I, I believe it comes down to um the ability to recognize opportunities. Um we are flooded, as you can imagine, every day with, with new pieces of information. And the vast majority of uh, of the information fit nicely into um the preconceived models that we were had constructed in our head as to how things should be working. Obviously, we have uh, assumptions, uh, models, and we test them, and that's the whole concept of, of experiments. But there are occasions when things don't work exactly as you anticipate that they are working, and it's those mm-hmm. outliers. And and you can imagine you could spend a, a, an extremely unproductive lifetime tracking down all of these outliers that might not be important. And But I will... I'm trying to teach my my, my laboratory um, how to recognize um, when an outlier is worth pursuing, and so um, that's something that I think is uh, a lifelong lesson that I, if, if learned, um, could really have a major impact on the success of someone's career, whether that career is solely in academic research or if, it, if they have an interest in actually therapeutic development as a drug
0: developer. And that, I think that's an acquired skill, picking winners. <laughs> yes. And I, I think it's uh, it's a definitely a difficult skill. If it weren't, we would have a lot more successes.
1: Right. And so that's what I'm trying to do is see if I can distill um, some of the... Um, of the skill set that I have developed over the years that, to me, feels natural, trying to mm-hmm. instill it into something that I can describe to someone else.
0: Well, excellent. Um, along those lines, as well, with a new um, set of targets, potentially, for you, I see that you were also awarded the Ellison Medical Foundation Senior Scholars Award in Aging. And I know there was a recent paper from Dr. Gareth Morgan in the UK about aging and myeloma and so I'm wondering if your work in this area can also be applied to myeloma, or if you've looked at that at all.
1: I, I haven't looked at that. that. That's a that's a very interesting connection that um, uh, I haven't explored, and I, I, I'm not familiar with, with that work you cited. I should definitely look that up.
0: It's pretty recent, just in the last couple of weeks.
1: Hmm. I'll just want to look that up.
0: So I guess a final question. How can patients help you do your work um, in the best way you can?
1: Oh, that's that's easy. Um, it, it's the the message I, I I gave before, and that is, um, we need grassroots support for more biomedical funding. I, I can't overemphasize this. in that um, this sequester has hurt us so much. I'm laying off researchers. I can't uh, hire the. the uh, I can't buy the pieces of equipment that I need. And, and this was on top of. Uh, already many, many years of anemic uh, of funding. Um, this doesn't happen n- magically. Uh, the funding, I mean, excuse me, the research um, tracks the funding. If there's more funding, there, there, there's more research. And so I would just encourage uh, your listeners to um, let their voices be heard uh, and and to continue to to make sure that our legislators know the importance of, of basic research,
0: you've given us some marching orders. Now we have two ways patients can make a difference in setting the pace of cancer research. So one would be joining clinical trials, which is the reason we're doing this series. And what you're saying is that we can make a difference in helping support the idea of federal more federal funding for can, for cancer research. Um, I just want to mention that this is possible and I learned about this from the book Emperor of All Melodies. In the 1940s, no one was talking about cancer research. And a woman named Mary Lasker, whose husband died of colon cancer, she sort of took it upon herself to decide that federally funded research needed to be in place. So she was very instrumental. She and her husband at the time were very instrumental in helping kind of reinvent the American Cancer Society and turn it into an organization whose mission it was to promote cancer research. Um, She she liked to say, if you think research is expensive, try disease, which I think we've all found to be true. And because of her efforts over many, many years, she helped expand the NIH budget from $2.4 million in 1945 to $5.5 billion in 1985. So it's a clear example that patients and caregivers can make a big difference in having federally funded cancer research. So thank you for pointing that out. Dr. Cruz, we are so grateful that you took the time to join us today. Uh, we are very fortunate to have your energy applied to the target of myeloma and hope that we can do multiple things to help support you in your valuable work.
1: Thank you very much, and I wish you the best.
0: Dr. Cruz performs his research as part of the Cruz Laboratory, but he's not actively treating multiple myeloma patients, and so he is not available for advice or questions. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Innovation on in Myeloma on the N-Patient Myeloma Radio Show. Join us next Friday for another episode to learn more about how your participation can help push faster towards a cure.